When I was in school, I used to see and I was fascinated by this well-known rattlesnake preacher. He was a fixture at Harvard Square. He'd have his props, his stool that he'd climb up on, his apocalyptic signs. He wore these old busted-out leather boots. He had a loose-fitting white like work shirt on and either jeans cinched up at the waist, looked like they were three sizes too big for him, or he'd have overalls. He'd jump up in the air and land on the ground and roll around and speak in tongues. He'd get down on his knees and lift his arms up to the heavens, implore us to give up sin. And uh, he looked like he'd escaped from a Thomas Hart Benton painting. You know, Thomas Hart Benton is an interesting painter. He uh, was a social realist of, I guess, the Depression era was when he was most famous, but he persisted into the 1950s. He lived until the 1970s, and he was at work when he died, so his creative vision perhaps outlasted his fame, um, but he's still relevant, I think. I, I'm fascinated by, he has this Whitmanian sense of American life as carnival or a spectacle. Everybody in his paintings seems to be performing their particular version of their American self in a public setting where other people can see and other people can evaluate that. And so there's there's just a, an amazing diversity expressed in the paintings. There are babies and old people, there are men and women, there are children, there are cowboys and musicians and agricultural workers, farmers, doctors, the Ku Klux Klan. He painted a painting in the Indiana State House that's a little bit controversial, I guess. Um, they wanted him to take out the representation of the Klan. This was in 1933. And he said, what, you don't have a clan here? Indiana was the state of highest clan membership in the nation at that time. It's estimated that a third of adult males in Indiana were in the Ku Klux Klan. Um, and that's kind of amazing because, you know, uh, a lot of people need to be reminded that the Klan of the 20s and 30s was as anti-Catholic anti-Semitic and anti-immigrant as it was anti-black. And so when you start looking at in a place like Indiana, an industrializing state, and you take out, you know, Jewish, Catholic, African-American, recent immigrant people, and suddenly that figure for a third of adult males in the Klan uh, goes up to about half of the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, which probably made up most of the voting block. And the Klan had completely infiltrated the Indiana political machine by that point. The painting was assembled for the Indiana State Fair, created for the Indiana State Fair in 1933. And uh, as I said, they wanted Benton to remove the panel that, that showed the Ku Klux Klan it's a really interesting image. It's kind of terrifying. I mean, it has images of the Klan in it. But there's a African-American girl in the hospital in the foreground. She seems to represent something about the future of the state. And in the background, there's the 
hoods and crosses and all that, but there's also the American flag coming up from behind. And the painting is a testament to the power of a free press because um, in 1933, the Klan had started to lose its grip on Indiana politics because the press had aggressively published stories about misdeeds in the Ku Klux Klan, basically exposing them for exactly what they were, rather than a Christian community organization and men's club, they were a terrorist organization, and they were starting to lose their grip, and Benton was celebrating the free press, but also recognizing that um, the Klan was still around. A couple years later, in 1935, the NAACP put on uh, an exhibition called An Art Commentary on Lynching, and they invited Thomas Hart Benton to contribute and to be featured in it because he was a anti-racist and uh, very progressive, at least and particularly relative to uh, the time in which he was operating. One of his great paintings from that same period, The Arts of Life in America, it was originally um, uh, installed in uh, Manhattan, shows that sort of amazing diversity. It has, it has Indian arts, arts of the West, arts of the South. It shows fancy people in New York, and it shows unemployed people struggling in the depths of the Depression. And it really, uh, it really sort of, uh, celebrates the wild diversity of American life. Apparently, during the Depression, we were interested in really looking at who we were, um, which is to say a diverse group of people spread out across a wide and beautiful country, much of it beautiful, much of the culture beautiful and celebrated, and some of it ugly. And we were interested in looking at all of it, I guess, because Benton was very well regarded, um, and he was beloved by people who saw his paintings, and it was public art, so it was available to ordinary folks. When you start displaying at the state fair, you're showing your images to the people you're depicting, Benton understood that art world insiders only know about the inside of the art world, and he wasn't that interested in that. Um, and after World War II, it's really interesting because there had been a whole rise of European art with the rise of fascism in Europe that uh, pretended not to be about anything, the quote, art for art's sake movement, where... It was just art. It didn't mean anything. And when it doesn't mean anything, it makes me a little bit nervous. And at the same time we were saying we were rejecting the principles of fascism in our country, we seemed to be adopting a lot of those art world insider European um, principles in art, and abstract expressionism started to become popular, and it made the social realism of Thomas Hart Benton, or Grant Wood, who painted that American Gothic painting, you know, the man and the woman standing there, that guy's got a hay fork. Um, painters who had been relevant and popular during the Depression had suddenly um, been characterized as passe and as participating in an old-timey conversation that wasn't relevant in a post-war world. 
and uh, abstract expressionism started to become the type of art that was interesting, at least art critics in America. What I find fascinating about this conversation, though, is not simply that, you know, some sort of fancy art had made some sort of working class art seem passe. I would be concerned with that, you know, on the surface, but it's more than that. Um, it actually turns out that though artists like Jackson Pollock, who became the most famous of the abstract expressionists and whose paintings have sold for more money than anyone else, but also Mark Rothko and some of the other other people um, had been used as uh, as props for a CIA campaign to promote a particular type of modern art that had less meaning in it and therefore was not aimed at social change or the social order of the future but they could sort of celebrate as, you know, see, we have modern, contemporary, forward-looking art in America. And so the CIA secretly funded exhibitions, purchased paintings, and pumped money into um, propping up abstract expressionism um, and, and uh, continuing to push down ab uh, social realism. And this is pretty recent work due to some newly unclassified documents that started in the mid-90s, and there's been some, um, some important academic work after that that I find really fascinating. And, of course, problematic as well. In a way, it seems to be the counterarm of McCarthyism. McCarthyism's like, let's not let people say anything and then this was, let's let a certain group of white men who have a certain kind of uh, highbrow art school training participate in something that's quote-unquote revolutionary. And, and it was. I mean, Pollock's, you know, poor painting and flicking paint on the canvas and other means of indirectly transferring paint to the, to the canvas... Uh, it was a it was a new thing, and and it's frankly it's not uninteresting to me. And as I said, you know, um, Pollock was an unwitting co-conspirator in all this. There's a more direct relationship too, though, between um, Thomas Hart Benton and Jackson Pollock, and he's um, the reason I want to focus on Pollock. Um, in addition to him being the most famous. Pollock had a very troubled childhood. His father was an abusive alcoholic who moved them around the country, you know, relentlessly because he was constantly losing jobs. Uh, he was a land surveyor. He lived here in uh, Northern California for a while. He left the family when Pollock was eight, and years later, um, Pollock became one of Benton's students. And Pollock uh, sort of made a father figure out of Benton and tried to emulate his hard drinking and his kind of tough guy image. And uh, that, I guess, contributed to Pollock's death in an alcohol-related single-car auto accident when Pollock was 44. I think he didn't recognize that Benton was playing a part as a hard drinking tough guy. And really, he was a very sophisticated person who was very serious about his art and about his instruction. 
and very self-conscious about the way he cultivated and refined his style in the same way that, that Pollock was. But I would say in some ways that Pollock cultivated a style that was the anti-Benton, uh, and it was somewhat uh, the result of his struggle to overcome Benton's influence on him and, and to get out from under his his father issues. I don't want to go all Dr. Freud on you here, um, but that's a part of it. When Benton saw Jackson Pollock's painting, Blue Poles, it's kind of typical of a, of a Pollock painting. It has these sort of semi-geometric shapes with lots of drips and splashes and, and uh, different types of uh, layers of color running in different directions. And when Benton saw the painting, he said to a friend, he said, I taught Jack that. Anyway, there was an element of this that was strictly personal and probably defined by a tremendous amount of personal and professional jealousy in both directions, I would say. Anyway, I'm attracted to Benton and to social realism, partly because... I see the stuff I do in it. I see people doing work. I see people playing. And in particular, I see a lot of people playing music. There are all kinds of guitar players and fiddlers and harmonica players. There's a, a lovely painting of Martha's Vineyard, and there's a young woman playing a guitar, and she's got these large hands, and he, he uh, features really large hands on almost everybody. They seem to represent... You know, the ability to grab hold of some work and get it done. And she's clearly like a working person who's in her leisure time with the, um, with the guitar in her hands. In the Southern Arts panel of the Arts of Life in America, there's a really fascinating sort of strip of people that flows out from a band. It moves from the performers out into the audience, I guess. There's a man dancing who's very central in the panel. Seems larger than the rest of the people. He's sort of thrust out in front of us. And as we move back, there's an older African-American harmonica player that might be DeFord Bailey. And there's an older white man playing a guitar left-handed and a woman next to him who's a fiddler, they kind of appear to be a couple, perhaps. And then there's another woman to the right who also seems to be playing our harmonica and maybe trading solos with the older African-American man. And I think it's fascinating that it's a depiction of Southern arts that is... Um, very sort of integrated, and I don't mean simply racially, which on its own, on the face of it, is very um, significant, because keep in mind, in 1932, it would have been illegal for these people to perform together in a public space, and yet we know, and I've talked about on the podcast many times, that that kind of cross-cultural exchange between African-American and Anglo-American musicians is at the heart of so much of the great music that we have in the South. If you think about the expression of Southern arts, 
a lot of people want to think about William Faulkner as the sort of pinnacle of the expression of Southern arts. And I think Faulkner's a great writer. I mean, he was sort of the first internationally famous Southern writer of that generation, but he's no more interesting to me than Eudora Welty, who could be considered his sort of female counterpart in a way. And, of course, the Southern art that's most fascinating to me, and I think the most significant in our culture, is music. And in the painting, we have a really great depiction of that music as something that's truly integrated and equal. In the backdrop of the painting, if you follow that line all the way back, it actually doesn't really originate with the musicians. When you move beyond the woman playing fiddle, there's one of these rattlesnake street preachers. He's locked eyes with her. He's very suspicious of her. Fiddlers are supposed to be very su suspicious characters, particularly when they're women. There's a lot of mythology around him. And he's this gaunt, lanky, bald figure with his giant hands up in the air, and he's got a sign behind him. He's got a little stand that looks like Lucy's in the Peanuts, and it says, Get Next to God. And he really and truly reminds me of my friend from Harvard Square. He took the same train home from his street preaching that I took home from Brandeis, and I couldn't help but think we were engaged in the same project. He was saving souls, and I don't know what I was hoping to do, but I think something like that as well. It always reminded me, I don't know if any of you remember Ralph the Wolf and Sam the Sheepdog. It was a Warner Brothers, Chuck Jones cartoon. Ralph looked pretty much like Wile E. Coyote, and it was a very similar kind of thing. And uh, the thing that was interesting about it is they would they would show up to work together, and they'd punch into the clock, and Sheepdog would say, Hello, Ralph, and the coyote would say, or the wolf would say, Hello, Sam, and they would chat, and they would clock in and commence to killing each other. I always loved that setup and that that sort of ability to sort of like that you're just doing your job and that you can turn it off and turn it back on and that your job is a kind of performance that you put on as soon as you punch that clock was a really interesting idea to me and still is. And uh, it makes perfect sense that a street preacher who's jumping up and down on a step stool and rolling around on the ground and speaking in tongues and admonishing people to give up their sinful ways would recognize that public transportation wasn't the place for that. He wasn't a crazy person who didn't have a sense of the separate spheres of his life. And, uh, you know, he punched a clock. I mean, he made it to that afternoon train at pretty much the same time every day. And he would come on the train and he would push his step stool and his signs and some of his props down beneath the seat and he would kind of sit there quietly facing forward in the same way as the as the business people as the students as the people going to and fro and uh, I don't know I was impressed by that in some basic way the guy in his act added something important to Harvard Square. 
it sort of fit in to the character of Harvard Square. There were tourists who wanted to go see Harvard Yard. There were old men playing chess. There were international tourists from all over collecting their uh, Harvard memorabilia at the Coop. And uh, there were folk singers performing. It was, you know, some kind of a late 90s version of the Thomas Hart Benton painting. And I feel that type of world doesn't exist or is harder to find now than it used to be. It might not even be true. I might just be getting old or been staying home too much because of the lockdown or semi-lockdown, but there's something about the power of the crowd that I seem to be missing right now. It seems odd to sit here and say that our forms of public expression are declining because they seem to be increasing. It's just that our props have become sinister in the way they are in that Indiana painting in 1933. When your props are guns and tiki torches, it's difficult to do what we really need to do, which is to be able to put them down at some point and get back on the train.